going to need a second. Oh, absolutely. Hand. Sorry. <laughs> I am. Here, I'm going to sit there for a second. Okay. Sorry. I'm Hi, everyone. I'm Camille Forbes. I'm faculty in the literature department, and welcome to the spring edition of the new writing series. Uh, first guest is Roxanne Barzi. I want to um, just say a couple of things, which is um, please take note of our other dates for um, our events. Um, they are all actually happening over in SME, um, in the performance space, and uh, that's just across the street. We've got um, Sila Soderstrom, who's coming on the 20th, um, then Don Mi Choi and Santiago Baquera um, Vasquez, who are coming on the 11th. Um, on the 18th, Jamie proctor Du, who's a poet and translator, is coming on the 18th. Um, then on the 25th, we're going to have our first year MFA students. And on the 1st of uh, June, we're going to have our uh, graduating MFA students. So um, please take note. You'll probably see posters around to remind you of when these events are happening. Um, before I invite uh, Baba Gahimi up to introduce our guest, I want to just uh, say one thing that's um, as the statement of the literature department stand against the anti-Mexican vandalism that's happening on campus, which we feel is really important to say our statement about the kind of act, uh, intolerant and aggressive acts that have, been, that have happened on campus and our response to them. The literature department of UCSD condemns the acts of racial vandalism, which took place on our campus on Friday, April 7th, against the Latina and Latino and Mexican communities. We're a department of professors, staff, and students that reflect diversity in its many forms, racial, class, gender, nationality, sexual orientation, and linguistic background. We work together on a UC campus distinguished from the others by, among other things, our close proximity to the US-Mexican border. We live in a state where the Hispanic population has become a majority, and for this reason, the violence of anti-Mexican graffiti wounds us all. We are committed to the creation of a dynamic and safe campus, which includes and respects our differences, a campus that serves the communities that sustain us. Just as we support critical dialogue and critical practice as the appropriate means of engaging our students and colleagues in our classrooms, research, and publications so too do we promote these activities towards connecting the university to its surrounding communities and environment as we face together the challenges of the 21st century. The literature department stands in solidarity with the actions taken by the university committee to demand appropriate action against those involved in these acts which attack and offend the values of this institution. And thank you for listening and I will invite Balak. Thank you. Thank you, Camille. Thank you for um, an important statement that you made, and I think we all share the sentiment and the view that uh, UCSD needs to be aware of some of these critical principles that we should all share. And I could uh, assure you that we lack that consciousness on this campus on some levels, and, and hopefully events like this and others could raise some awareness. Um, and uh, speaking of awareness, uh, <laughs> I am fully aware of the fact that we are in the presence of a great novelist, also a great anthropologist, and it is uh, very much of a, a great pleasure for me to introduce you, my colleague, friend, uh, Roxanne, Professor Roxanne Varzi. 
Professor Varzi is a, uh, a teaches at the Anthropology and Visual Studies at the University of California, Irvine. She's the author of Warring Souls, Media, Martyrdom, and Youth in Post-Revolution Iran, published by Duke University Press in 2006. I urge you to buy that book. It's a very interesting book. Her award-winning short stories have been published in a number of anthologies and magazines, including the New York Press. Her film, another great work here, Plastic Flowers Never Die, has been shown in festivals around the world, from Bosnia to Boston, and her sound installation, Whole World Blind, has been exhibited in galleries in San Francisco and Berlin, and is featured on public books. Professor Varzi was born in Tehran and lived with her family shortly after the revolution in 1979. In 2000, she was awarded the full, first Fulbright Fellowship since the Islamic Revolution for research in Iran. Please join me in welcoming Professor Varzi. I want to thank you both for inviting me and for, for hosting me and for giving me such a warm welcome. Um, well, I think I'll, I'll just start so far. So this is, um, this is an unusual book because it's a mixed genre book. It's written as a novel, but it has been researched as an ethnography. So I'm well aware of the fact that most novelists research their material, but this was also written with the idea that the research not be thrown out quite in the way it is when you write a novel. So originally I wrote it as a novel. That's sort of the, the centerpiece of the work is the, the narrative sort of fiction piece. But then I decided to go back. I couldn't, I had a really hard time throwing out that part where you explain yourself as a novelist and sort of explain what's happening in the novel. And I put that back in in a series of notes, which I'll, I'll read a little bit from the introduction as well, called Director's Notes. So the novel is about an underground theater company in Tehran. And uh, again, it's written as a novel, but it's interspersed with notes from the director, who's one of the characters. But his notes are really based on my field work. And they're basically my ideas, obviously, as a writer, um, but they don't go beyond the scope, because he talks very theoretically about things, they don't go beyond the scope of what somebody in his position would have read or known. Okay, so I didn't put in all of my knowledge, I put in, you know, books that were accessible to the possible character. So I can explain more about that during Q&A if you're interested. I thought I'd start with just a little bit of the introduction. When I first wrote the book, it didn't have an introduction, but because of the nature of academic publishing, my three reviewers at Stanford University Press basically um, said, this has to have a foreword. We have to understand where this is coming from and where the material came from and how she's doing this, and she needs to write a foreword. So I wrote a foreword. Um, so I won't read you the whole foreword, which begins with some of the history of Iranian theater. And if you don't buy the book, you're welcome to read the entire foreword online at stanford.org under my name. They actually have that excerpted for you. So I will start with a note to the reader. So in the late 1990s, many youth, young youth theater companies worked intensely together underground as unofficial companies, only coming above ground after President Khatami's election. By 1999, they had fully emerged above ground and were for the first time creating an alternative artistic space in the public sphere. I saw this firsthand at Hamid Tahiri's production of The Blacks, which opened in Tehran in the spring of 2000. 
The Blacks was inspired loosely by Jean Genet's The Blacks, A Clown Show, and introduced to Iranian theater some of the first serious body movement, avant-garde use of sound and text since the Shiraz Film, um, Theater Festival in the 1970s. Dahiri's company had first met nine years earlier in an underground acting and movement class. What made Tahiri's theater so pathbreaking was his incorporation of Jerzy Grotowski's incredibly taxing movement and acting method known as the poor theater. This was described by Grotowski in his groundbreaking book, Toward a Poor Theater, 1968. Tahiri had painstakingly translated his 30-year-old text 20 words a day with the help of an old dog-eared English dictionary. Tahiri not only imported Grotowski's acting exercises, but he also completely adhered to his radically anti-establishment ideas of a poor theater. Um, Tahiri revolutionized the way that theater was being done in Tehran, including improvisational elements, risky but necessary when scripts were highly censored, choreography that allowed male and female actors to just barely touch, and most important, the addition of audience participation, which got out of control in his last Black's performances, when female audience members touched male actors and even threw off their veils. <coughs> so that performance inspired me to think about the ways that I too, as an anthropologist, could push through boundaries, disciplinary, genre, political, and personal, and could write about resistance, creativity, and hope. To that end, I spent the next decade researching and writing and rewriting this novel. Novels take much longer to write than academic books about a group of young Iranian college students who form an underground avant-garde theater group and define censorship and using other forms of social resistance attempt to put on a play. Though this book is inspired by the plays that took place in Tehran primarily at the turn of the last century, it's not a retelling of those performances, nor is it a political commentary about a specific movement, which is why I further fictionalized the action by placing it in 2009 when a protest similar to the dormitory protests of 1999 occurred and a political tug of war ensued between the people and the government, with masses of Iranians of all ages taking to the streets. Writing fiction allows me to stay away from political specificities that might link a particular theater movement, moment, or individual to a particular political moment in time, be it 1999 or 2009. But writing a fictional ethnography allows me to keep to the ethnographic specificities at the heart of this theater movement. So as I said before, what makes the, the work different from a traditional novel is the inclusion of the director's notes, which are fictional. So to that extent, the book is ethnography, um, but it's also a reflection on daily life, where in Tehran it's lived creatively, whether one is an artist or not. So while this book is about collaboration between fact and fiction, art and ethnography, science and human experience, the anthropologist and the people, it's ultimately about the freedom to create and to openly express our creations, opinions, and insights. It's about leaving the dark and moving toward the light. So I will leave you there on the intro and read a few excerpts. So it's always hard to read excerpts because obviously this has a plot line. <laughs> so I'm going to be moving around in the plot a bit. And I don't want to spoil it for you because there are some you know, elements of mystery um, in the plot. But I will say that um, it's in, in this scene, a, a small group of people are having a conversation about the possibility of theater. 
Listen up, I'm translating some radical Polish theater exercises, Human says and looks up at them and shuts his book. Cool stuff. The performance will be extremely physical, Human begins. Sure, of course it will, because you're not participating, Nima jabs. Human ignores him and continues. It involves modern dance, yoga, and a few different theater philosophies. The audience will participate. They will sit on stage with us. Nima laughs. In what corner of the earth will an audience do that? And will they give us a visa? Here, we're doing it right here in Tehran. Enough frozen body syndrome. You do realize that no one has changed the laws. We still can't swing our hips or touch each other. Did I miss something? It's time to use our bodies artistically. We'll figure out a way. Someone has to, Human says. Theater, Laylee asks. Oh, Laylee June, yeah, you're at a theater rehearsal, Human pronounces. Laylee looks at Nima and knits her brows. News to me as well, Nima says curtly. Arzu straightens her back against the chair, and for the first time, she turns to face Laylee. She looks her directly in the eyes and says, Human makes his actors earn their place in the production. We work like dogs. Even at the Thespian Academy, we didn't work so hard. I'm not an actor, says Laylee. Are you? She asks Human. Arzu lightly taps out a drum roll on the table with a Friday night newscaster sing-song. She recounts how she first met Human. It was just after Noru's, at the vernal equinox, when the Japanese plum trees in Naderi's garden were in full bloom, that midway through a particularly riveting passage of Henry V, a strong scent of jasmine disturbed our young hero's equilibrium of coffee and cigarettes. Arzu really, Human protests. She continues. The simple provincial boy looked up at a young woman dressed in a sleek fitted chic and asked, did you say something? She retorted, are you preparing to audition? He gave her a quizzical look. He set down his book to give her his full attention. He seldom paid attention to other people. The women always noticed him. He had the looks that made young girls giggle. She glances at Laylee. Nima laughs. Arzu, stop, Human says. She continues. Women sense his underlying intensity and rarely brave a word with him. Okay, enough Arzu, really. Oh, but it's so exciting. Or no, sorry, I skipped a whole section here. Enough of this Islamic Republic broadcasting. The kitsch certainly suits contemporary Tehran, Laylee adds. Once we figured out that Human was in reality an actor, we invited him to join us to read the play anyway. We were short of men. Short of men? Arzu, it was my impression that you were the only woman, Human remarks. This really happened? asks Laylee. You can't blame me for thinking he was an actor. Now, why would anyone have the wrong impression of your friendly advances, Human asks. Well, you guys were reading Taming of the Shrew. That's hardly the same thing or a coincidence. It's a completely different beast. I skipped over a section where he was reading Henry V from Shakespeare. Yeah, a real coincidence, considering we needed another male actor, and you happened to be reading a Shakespeare play, Arzu says, her eyes narrow. Laylee decides that Arzu must regard everyone with suspicion. I assure you, it was a coincidence. Not everyone who wants to read a play wants to act, or direct for that matter. He takes a long drag on his cigarette, and then he taps it on the edge of the ashtray. Shakespeare's a monarchist. It's banned. It's quite a coincidence. Arzu emphasizes the word coincidence and stares back at him. Okay, I'm gonna skip ahead. By the time he had the confidence to project his voice, there was an invisible bubble around our little group with him at the center. Arzu pauses. No one dared speak during rehearsal, but outside in the university drama department, we admitted to each other, the more we practiced, the more we wanted to run. 
One day I couldn't hold it back. I suggested that maybe we just weren't brave enough, that this was too much to handle. Well, you can imagine our director's stoic expression as he replied, you need to use your diaphragm. Your voice should be much deeper. Arzu mimics Human's low tenor. God of battles, steal my soldiers' hearts. Possess them not with fear. Take from them now the sense of reckoning. If the opposed numbers pluck their heart from them. And battle we did, recalls Arzu. Stop, Human insists. He looks up abruptly, but Arzu ignores him. We're just getting started, Arzu insists. Okay. So I'm going to skip ahead to director's note. dynamic disquiet. All this theory, all these thoughts, working through all this English is like following a trail of pretty broken objects. I chase these fragments in a game of hide and seek, combing a foreign psychic landscape for pieces of frosted glass that found still remain just fragments, beautiful in their broken state but indecipherable. The history of their former shape and culture lost forever. Our broken edges remain sharp. Time has not softened whatever it is that has caused our philosophy to lose its form. It's as if the ghosts of writers past are lightly tapping on my shoulder. Today's ghost is fair to see. He comes to warn me not to get too close to Zahak, the ancient Persian prince who was kissed on each shoulder by an evil spirit, after which a serpent sprouted on each side. The spirit advised him to feed the serpents the brain of a youth every day. Sacrificing the intellect and thoughts of the younger generation is an ancient story, one that's ironically banned. I could write a modern version of a story like Zahak. Friday night, the play comes to me in bits and pieces like these tiny, pretty, shiny objects. I collect and jot down vague descriptions, the contours and the poetry for which I wait patiently, sometimes for hours to emerge. A serpent wound around a lovely neck, can't show lovely necks. I find myself wanting to ask Laylee her opinion, but then I stop, afraid to break the spell, afraid of what she might say, and so I avoid her. I watch her reactions closely. I want to know what she thinks of all this. All I see is a good student, determined, earnest, and always paying close attention. Writing is such a lonely act. Some nights the writing is fluid from start to finish. Either way, I remain a medium for illicit ideas to find their way into the realm of the spoken. Other times, I'm draped over my bed like a discarded bath towel, too tired and limp to care about continuing. But then something, some sadist muse, keeps insisting. Now, this is a scene at, sort of toward the end. They're sitting in a cafe again. They sit at a table facing the goldfish pond and wait for the waiter. They're, they are one of three tables of patrons. Across the patio is a young couple. She's dressed in a pretty floral print scarf, and he's wearing a gray suit. The woman coyly stirs her straw, pretending not to notice her drink at all. She stares into the face of the man across from her as if he's the most interesting person in the world. First date, Laylee whispers, whom I laughs. 
The man is explaining every single computer programming book he has ever read. The woman just barely lifts her drink to her lips, and every time there's a short pause, but then he puts it, but then she puts it back down when he continues. That poor woman is dying of thirst, Laylee says. It's her choice, Nima says gruffly. Human looks up at him. Laylee smiles, but he doesn't return her smile. I have a half a mind to walk over there and tell her that she isn't fooling anyone but herself, and that she's in for a life of boredom and suicide if she continues to allow him to speak. Laylee jokes, trying to lighten the somber mood Nima has brought with him to the table. That's a little extreme, Nima says. Check out the foreigners. They're more interesting, Human suggests. Look, she's been shopping all over Iran, Laylee says of the woman who is swathed in a long, flouncy red, green, and yellow skirt that is intricately splattered with tiny mirror beads. It's a skirt traditionally worn by women who work the rice fields in the Caspian. Her orange and red tribal scarf comes from the ethnic Arab women, clear on the other side of the country in the south, near the Gulf. He looks like Lawrence of Arabia, Human chuckles. The man is dressed in khakis, hiking boots, and a long-sleeved Oxford shirt. She's the one with the scarf wrapped around her head like a Bedouin, Laylee notes. Their waiter stands patiently poised with his little notepad and pen, pretending to take interest in where the woman is emphatically pointing to in her travel guide. Like Lawrence himself, pointing to a map of the desert, Human says, laughing. Balmy, yeah, the woman says slowly and carefully. Hasn't a clue, the man says in English. But it's in the glossary, she says, quoting, a sumptuous, deep-fried, honey-dipped, traditional Persian delicacy. It comes highly recommended, and it can be found in bakeries and traditional tea houses in Tehran. No bamiyan, the waiter insists. Laylee giggles. We should help and translate. We're being mean. We're being sane, the man says. Had there been a cafe here during the Shah's time, they would be serving exactly what they serve here now, espresso and Danish pastries, Nima remarks. The Shah's parties were catered by Maxime's in Paris, Human whispers. Bamiyan, the tourist repeats loudly. We don't have any, the waiter says in Persian. How can you not know what Bamiyan is, she asks her partner. He looks up from his English language Tehran Times and shrugs his shoulders. The waiter looks at Laylee and gives her an exacerbated and apologetic look. He finally walks over to the table and says, I'm sorry it took so long, these tourists. Walter Benjamin, I love him. He says in The Storyteller, the art of storytelling is coming to an end. Less and less frequently do we encounter people with the ability to tell a tale properly. More and more often, there is embarrassment all around when we wish to hear a story. Oh, more and more there is embarrassment all around when the wish to hear a story is expressed. It's as if something that seemed inalienable to us, the securest among our possessions, were taken from us the ability to exchange experiences. Benjamin was ahead of his time. His ghost lingers, waiting for us to move on while he waits us out in purgatory. We should release the poor soul. Exchange of experiences, I like that. Our theater will work against all of the identity building that was forced on us after the revolution. All of the work that went into making us obedient Islamic men and women, where the highest goal was to sacrifice ourselves for the collective, for the nation, quite literally through martyrdom by giving up a family member. Our theater must be therapy, but how? Certainly not like the popular neorealist cinema that redefines and re 
vitalizes our national identity, especially for the West, by showing pretty landscapes and little kids that could be from any Caucasian country in the Asian steppes, losing balloons and shoes on their way to a new life. Ours must be for Iranians, by Iranians, for both the actor and the audience. Our sacrifice will be the intense physicality of our performance, the great physical demand from the body of the actor. It's a different kind of martyrdom. So now they're in the Caspian Sea, not giving away any of the plot, but they have to escape to the Caspian for a little while. The next evening, they stop along the shore to watch a group of women form a prayer line along the edge of the sea. The women motion for them to move along. The women can stay, they say in their sing-song Caspian accents. Then they turn back to each other and giggle in Gilaki about the boys and girls walking together. Arzu points to the makeshift curtain that blocks them from men praying alongside them, present but unseen. Whoops, says Nima, and leads them back to a giant rock where they can sit and watch the sea. Eclipsed by the dying light, the rising and prostrating shadows of the praying women dance across the rocks like black ghosts floating on the horizon. It's so peaceful. I can almost feel the prayer, Laylee says softly. It's been a long time since I've seen anyone pray, Arzu says. Where's Human? Laylee looks around. He snuck off to the, pier, to the pier, says Nima, not in the mood for the spectacle of organized religion. He's gone to meditate. And you? Laylee asks Nima. I pray with my dad, for my dad, he answers. I want to go to the mosque, says Laylee. They give her a surprised look. What for? asks Arzu. She rubs her arms against the chill. I've never really been to one, she says. How's that possible? They force us into a mosque at every opportunity, Nima says, looking at Laylee as if meeting her for the first time. I'm Christian, Laylee says. I'm sure Human mentioned it. He did, but you still grew up here. I'm allowed to opt out of religious school trips. Arzu immediately agrees to go with her. Really? asks Nima, surprised. Why not? Let's go. <clears throat> Laylee walks to the pier to summon Human. She finds him sitting cross-legged, eyes closed. His faith defies explanation. There are no guides or laws. He's told her many times that God is everywhere, in the rain, the foam of the green sea, freshly baked bread, and the swish of a chador. Human opens his eyes. A faint smile plays on his lips. He looks peaceful, rested. Laylee whispers, was it easy to learn? There's nothing to learn. You just tap into something that's already there, Human answers. The women borrow prayer chadors from the villa and head out back for the evening prayer. They ride the bus, standing chador to chador in the women's section for one short stop. Laylee, self-conscious in her chador, looks down at the other hems that glide across the floorboards of the bus. The day draws its last breath and exhales a gust of cold, dark wind that pulls at their chadors and threatens to steal away with them. Laylee turns her back to secure her chador as night falls slowly to its knees. The large crystal chandeliers at the entrance of the mosque Bob brightly in the wind. Kabob stands dot the walkway toward the grand blue honeycomb tiled entrance to the mosque where families gather festively, picnic baskets and duffels in hand, looking for friends and relatives. It would be fun to spend the night here with the pilgrims, Laylee says at the mosque entrance. I guess, Arzu says offhandedly. They enter through the women's door and circle the saint's tomb, stopping to pray and kiss and tie strings around the gilded cage. Arzu looks into the crowd of men separated by plexiglass. 
Layli follows her gaze to an Afghani Sufi with a long, thin beard, a high wool cone-shaped cap, and a flowing cape. He reminds me of my father, Arzu says. The man is tall and thin, and his face is raised as if to implore the heavens. Where is he? Layli asks. No longer, Arzu shakes her head. I wish he were alive. Tears well up in her eyes. We could finally be covered by the same dome and protected by the same God, she says. You are, says Layli. Oh, I felt so betrayed by God. I need his protection, Arzu cries softly. I'm sure he's looking down on you now with pride, Layli says. I doubt it, Arzu says. God doesn't approve of me. Should I keep reading or should we break for Q&A? I can do one more director's note. The weight their life had then, the contours and shapes of their bodies, and the impression they left on the snowy world dissipated forever. A forensic anthropologist or an archaeologist takes the outline of a skeleton, the remains, and then fills it in with imaginary flesh and a story. If they can do it, why can't I? A book made of imaginary flesh based on years of reading and an educated guess, an educated play. I can't do it because I'm not privy to people's private lives, the in-between moments, the ones that are less dramatic, but that count for far more than we ever give them credit for, and the incubating moments, the quiet ones that become the meat of a good story, that lead to the final action, that build character. Those are the moments that elude me, and yet those are the moments that I might ultimately explain why my character does what she did. I know how she handled the big drama, but how did she handle those little moments? How do we show love in a censored world? How do we write about it in a journal? Or how can we write about it in a journal? As allegory, myth? Mystical allegories about the separation of the beloved and the lover say distance generates desire. I've been thinking a lot about mystical separation, desire, loneliness in a city of millions. It was freezing tonight. I walked alone past the pastry shops, slipper stores, and flower stands. Little boys peddling coupons grabbed my sleeves. Well-meaning women shooed them away. I passed by a little sidewalk park with a fountain, under which a man sits every night, his face covered with a newspaper, a hat placed in front of him, waiting for change. I stared at the newspaper as if it were his face. Text, news of the day, Black, dripping ink stared back at me where there should have been a fleshy face. He covers his shame with the news, with the anonymity of the affairs of the world that he is so much a part of, but which makes him just another faceless being on the Tehran streets. Poverty is worse than a veil. You can't see its eyes. To be an activist and obsessed with the veil is to look the other way. I dropped him a few coins and then shamelessly looked away. But the faceless man stays with me, like a lover who is photographed against the sun. Neither leaves a realistic impression, but both leave an unerasable trace, more cutting and closer to truth than would a sharper image. I do the only thing I can with him. I turn him into a character. Thank you. Any questions, comments about anything? that I might be able to answer or not. I'll do my best. I have a question. Um, I, I appreciated what you said about wanting to feel free to move outside of a kind of narrow um, historical moment. 
But I, I would like to know more about the particular moment that you did choose to kind of center the story in, and to what extent you see that that kind of choice shape, kind of shifting the politics a little bit, the kind of mm -hmm. background that against which this is happening. Wow, that's a that's a good question. It's a heavy question. Um, it's interesting, and in the reader reports, um, there was a little bit of debate about. Mm -hmm whether I needed to talk more about that political moment, and I chose not to in the book because I want to continue to go back to Iran. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> mm -hmm. So in, in 1999, there was a dormitory protest, and um, it, it ended kind of violently. And um, it was right when I went to Iran to do my original research on the Fulbright, and I was studying youth culture, and I was studying college students, and they're the ones who had protested. So was a very, um, it's a very difficult moment. And then in 2009, 10 years later, as I was writing the novel, the Green Movement happened. And I really think in so many ways that 1999 was a precursor to 2009. It was sort of the beginning of, of, of rumblings and the possibility of a, of a form of activism that was sort of ready to happen. Um, so I, I moved the action up for a number of reasons. For one thing, it took 10 years to write the book. <laughs> So I wanted to make it more contemporary. Um, it also, again, it, um, I feel like the two political moments were very similar. And in, in order to use 2009, uh, in order to really kind of think about 1999, it was helpful to use 2009. Mm -hmm. um, and also, it's just a simple matter of being able to refer to it very um, generally and have people understand what it was, whereas not many people are familiar with 1999. So it's much easier to allow people to kind of, um, you know, put their own political ideas about it. Into, they already had sort of preconceived notion, or they at least knew what was going on. I, I didn't have to take that risk of explaining it. Okay. Does, that, does that make sense? Yes. Does that help? Yes. But it was difficult. It was really difficult. And, you know, my husband um, didn't want to read it until it was out in print for a number of reasons. And then when he read it, he said, oh, my God, do you realize that there's some inflation? <laughs> I uh -huh. totally, it was like the one thing I missed. I had all these charts, and I was trying to figure out what had changed, and, you know. And he was like, oh, it doesn't cost that much, you know, anymore to do this. And I was like, oh, God, you know, if you'd read it, uh -huh. <laughs> you help me with that. So it's, it's hard when you, when, you, when you do that kind of a shift. Um, but it seems to have worked, except for the, the, the telephone, the cost of calling <laughs> on the telephone. But hey. Yes. I, I, I have a comment about, to me, the most interesting part, which is the director's notes. notes yeah. um, of course, I haven't read the book, so I don't have the whole context, only your reading. But I, I felt that it was sort of ancillary, as if you had the novel and then you added the comments, which of course is what you did do. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been more interesting if the director was kind of the central point. And he, through whatever reason, through political reasons, whatever, life reasons, have pondered these things, and then this, the uh, theater unfolded from the notes that mm -hmm. he, he thought about, mm -hmm. because that would have like make make it a double story that wound on itself, rather than like a story and then like 
these sort of critiques? Yeah, it do, you know, it, it, it does actually, but I, I kind of read, um, I read away from that a bit, so I didn't read um, the parts where they're doing the theater rehearsals, for example, so you're not really, it's true, you're not really seeing how his process is playing out in, in what I read, and maybe that's a good suggestion for further readings to maybe stick to that a little bit more. Um, one of the things I really toyed with and had a hard time with and thought about sort of quite deeply was actually doing a play within the play mm -hmm. and really almost writing the play through the director's notes and then having them rehearse it. One of, um, and that became really difficult. And then another thing that happened actually, um, my editor asked me to take out a majority of the, the theater practices. I think so much of my research as an anthropologist was on Iran, but I got really obsessed with avant-garde theater and I was reading a lot of Jersey Grotowski and I was really, you know, doing a lot of that kind of work, and I had these intense um, exercises and scenes where, where they're playing things out, and there's still a few of them in there, and they're important, but she really did have me take out uh, a lot of them, because I think um, maybe it was, I don't know, too narrow. Well, I, I was, you know, when you were reading, I was thinking of a beautiful movie, a Spanish movie, I think by Carlos Gula. It was a very, very famous Spanish director since the 1960s. He, wrote, he, he did this beautiful film, I think maybe in 2005, called Tango. Oh, yeah. It was really about a director and how he thought about choreography and how his relationship with the ballerina and all that. It just like was a beautiful unfolding and I, I think that your your story could could have been <coughs> unfolded in, in that unfolded way. Unfolded yeah. in that way. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I did tango with that idea mm -hmm. back in. Yeah, I, I I did as much as I could. Um, thanks. <laughs> Anyone else? Any other? Yeah. So I'm not really familiar with the green movement. Okay. Babak, do you want to explain, explain the Green Movement? The Green Movement, uh, <laughs> a movement that was, uh, give me an excuse to come and sit there eventually. Uh, it was a movement that uh, basically began as a reaction to the election results in 2009 in Iran, June 12, 2009. Um, many Iranians thought that at the time the incumbent president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, should not win the presidency, so many of them decided to protest in the streets, and then this state had a reaction. But the movement describes itself as green, uh, as a symbol of renewal, as a symbol of uh, a new future. And well, unfortunately, in my opinion, eventually they were crushed. Uh, though still, they remain in the background, and they might actually be revived, the movement itself. But that's how it started. It actually started as a re in a reaction to, a, to election results. And it, in my opinion, allowed the Arab Spring in a lot of ways, because it was a precursor yeah. to the Arab Spring. Um, and I have an article on it as well. They kept um, they kept the color of green because it's also the color of Islam, and they used a lot of the same um, discourse. So they weren't kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. They were trying to sort of reinvigorate and reinvent it, and they were trying to sort of do it within the system. And it still got crushed. That's what actually brings me to a question with your characters that, um, and I think the, the Caspian Sea scene kind of gives us some access to that, but this kind of sense of to what extent do they 
kind of butt up against, wrestle with thoughts about re religiosity and their relationship to the state as, um, you know, as a religious state, and yeah. and to what extent? I mean, you know, there might be some kind of there's that push and pull of both the expectations. Right. Of, a, of a kind of rebellion against, right. or, you know, there's kind of a, 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 a maybe an a assumption that there would be a kind of dichotomy of either mm -hmm. for or against, and the kind of ways that maybe you work with that and seeing what mm -hmm. the individual characters are pushing for while negotiating. That. That's a great question. So, um, the director, the main character, Homan, and it comes out in, um, <clears throat> maybe I should read those sections too next time, but it comes out pretty, pretty strongly. He, he comes from a very religious family background and his, so spoiler alert, <laughs> his father and his um, brother were killed in the Iran-Iraq war. Mm -hmm. So he's really quite obsessed with the war. And as the theater progresses, um, and I didn't, I didn't read that scene, but they start, he starts talking in his director's notes about war and protest, and he starts giving them these exercises and they're saying, why are we doing this? And then he did the Henry V and he's kind of and, and the other thing, too, is because he's so well-versed in the discourse of the state, he keeps trying to push them to try to work within that so that they can get into student festivals, like the martyrdom or the war remembrance festival, and then to, and then to sort of do something really radical with it. Um, so there's a lot of um, sort of the push and pull of what religion should be. And then just the very little scene that you saw, he talks a lot about sort of Meditation, there's a scene, they go to a Sufi lodge. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot about that. There's a lot about drugs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it gets um, pretty intense. It's just hard without um, kind of giving away the whole plot to mm -hmm. sort of get into it. But So there's a lot about sort of whether... Um, whether God is a replace, whether drugs are a replacement for God, and and you know, and how all of that works out in a spiritual state, and what is a religious state versus a spiritual state of being, and and how theater can speak to that, and um, whether Grotowski himself was giving another sort of form of religion during you know the communist Polish times that he was working in. So they do; they have a lot of these sort of conversations about what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be religious. I purposely made one of my um, characters Christian. Um, so there's a scene where they go into a church when they're running away from some people who are storming one of their practice sites. So there's there's a lot of, um, yeah. You know, my first book was about religion and secularism and the Iran-Iraq war, and I really didn't move away from that <laughs> as much as, I guess I'm still a little bit obsessed. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's another reason I didn't read that so much right now, because I want to give the impression that I've done something completely different. <laughs> yeah. To, uh, to, what, to what degree was this your point of view in the sense of being an Iranian-American? And to what degree is this really reflective of what's happening in Iran today? Because I find it... Uh, Fascinating that there was so much reference to the West, Shakespeare, you know, avant-garde theater, yeah. as if that was it was like the Western struggle against the traditional state. And, and I mean, I could imagine <coughs> that if I was a conservative Iranian, that that's in Iran, that this is in fact actually uh, infiltration of the West bleeding into Iran, the, the very thing that we're trying to struggle against, and yet 
you want to present it as as a kind of liberation, right. but in, in a sense, it's also a kind of a kind of sell out to the West uh, attack uh, of the tradition. So how how would yeah. this be seen by the Native Iranians in, in a sense? Well, the director who I did most of my field research on wouldn't see it as a sellout. He would see it as more of a reuse and a refashioning. And he, he doesn't think of it as West and East. He really thinks of it as good ideas and bad ideas. And he um, was obsessed with Grotowski. That's the first place I ever heard about Grotowski was in Tehran. Um, and he used what he liked about Genet in particular is he liked the idea of being able to sort of rewrite the script in such a way that, um, that reflected a lot of things from the Quran and things that he could sort of hide in something that looked very Western. He continued, and some of, I continued to follow him, you know, beyond the, this type of project. I was really interested in how his work changed also as he left Iran. He ended up doing a lot in Berlin. The book begins and ends in Berlin. Um, and when he moved to Berlin to do work, he worked with refugees in particular, and his big thing was not to do a play that had one um, language. So each person, each actor that he worked with, he did a lot of body movement and physical movement, and he allowed them to sort of um, do um, an impromptu, um, sort of like almost like an improv, um, you know, linguistically. Like, so he, he, he gave them a general idea, and then he allowed them to use their original language. So in, in the case of the play I saw in Berlin, it was Portuguese, Dari, there was an Afghan refugee, Arabic, um, trying to remember, maybe there was somebody who was from Bolivia. There are all these different languages happening at different times. He was very influenced by, um, you know, by 60s and 70s cinema. These are some of the things, too, that he had access to, right? So the things that um, were, you know, published by the state just didn't move him in the way this stuff did. It was pretty amazing that um, I just taught a course. We have a continuing education, Osher lifelong learning for senior learners, and I just taught a course on theater. And I actually went and Googled him. One of the things um, when I was writing the novel, I stopped having contact, and I just didn't want. It. I don't know. It's difficult when you start trying to create a character. You kind of just really don't want to know what's going on with them. And I went and I looked back, and Hamid Tahiri has since immigrated to. Um, Stuttgart, um, the festival there was a big supporter of his, and it was really interesting to hear him talk about, you know, being in Stuttgart and, you know, like you said, it's kind of like the West won out, and now he's probably going to have to be a waiter because there's a different kind of, and you know, I and you know, I don't want to give away the ending, but there's that discussion too at the end of the book, and this is before he left, and the way I ended it um, bothered when I first tried to sell it to trade presses, it really bothered a lot of agents that he made the choice that he did. Um, and you know, there's a big debate about whether um, leaving is selling out or whether using these texts is selling out. Um, but he also saw someone like Benjamin as, as an immigrant. He felt like Benjamin you know, and, and Hannah Arendt, he loves Hannah Arendt, he felt like they understood revolution, they understood alienation. So he wasn't really, I mean, he in particular wasn't thinking about it so much as a Western thing. It's true that as a lot of this philosophy got translated, 
you know, in the early 90s, like Foucault and some of these other people, there was that sense, definitely, when the government started allowing it to be translated, that there was a sense that it was just kind of an import, that it didn't really mean much, um, it didn't really matter. A lot of what was getting translated was Derrida and Foucault, and not to, you know, completely put down Derrida, but it just didn't really have great meaning for life in Tehran at the time. But it was very pretentious, and there were philosophers who loved to, you know, and they tried very hard to bring in a new language and make, um, you know, like the word deconstruction, you know, like have a Farsi word for it, a Persian word for it. They were having such a hard time with this, and you can look in some of the early translations at the, um, they had a little glossary with the new Persian words that should be used. I mean, obviously, in the end, the English word was imported, and the philosophy didn't quite work. But he was doing something very, very different. And I really tried very hard to, um, to, to work with, with the mindset around that kind of work and to think about why it was radical. You know, For them, too, Kuratowski was working during communism. And they felt that there was great affinity between the Islamic Republic and communism and, and, and that struggle. But then in the end, you know, one of the characters <coughs> says, like, enough with all the black. You know, Kuratowski's all about... This idea of poor theater is exactly like the state, you know, and she says, let's bring in some color. So there was, all, there, there's a lot of sort of trying to, to, to change that stuff and not adhere to it really strongly. And he even says at one point, we don't want other gurus, you know, we can't make these people gurus. Like we can't, that's just, that's exactly what happened in the beginning anyway with all those philosophies and look at where it got us. And he rails against that and says all the time to the other theater people, don't take me as a guru and don't take any of these philosophers. Like, there's one scene, I think I cut it out actually, of the, but somebody gave him a, um, a Sartre poster where you know, he's smoking and because Human's always smoking. And he puts it up, Nima puts it up in the dorm room and he says, take it down. We've had enough posters. Like we don't, the face, you know, all of that. Um, so... I just, you know, I found so many of these artists just really interesting interlocutors. When I first wanted to do my field work, I, um, I believe really strongly in giving back and really treating people equally as, um, you know, equal, you know, interlocutors. I, I, what's the word that we always use in anthropology that I can't stand? Um, informants. I don't think of people that way, but more like people you're having a conversation with. And so to that end, I had salons when I was doing my field work and I invited people in and we, t we chatted and I was really interested in this question of postmodernism and at the time, you know, an Islamic philosopher had said, yeah, this is, you know, everybody's become a postmodern subject. I was like, what does that mean? Like, what does that really mean? And then when I went and had the salon, I would talk to them about that and they're like, we're not postmodern, you know, and I would say, well, you know, is there anything I can give back? Do you want anything? What can I do for you guys? I'm asking you all these questions and they would all say, we want a class on philosophy, or we want to, you know, we want help with ESL, and then we also want to know, <laughs> like, you know, like postmodern philosophy. So we had these great discussions about, you know, they're, I mean, just incredibly bright, whatever they could get their hands on. And I think what was different about this particular theater group was that they were reading stuff in the original. So they weren't, he was reading Benjamin in German. You know, he wasn't reading the government sanctioned translations of Foucault and Derrida. He was actually finding these old paperbacks that were in the back rooms of bookstores that nobody had bought and leafing through them. And this guy was just a gifted person, <laughs> incredibly. 
And yeah, so um, in terms of, you know, is this representational of all of Tehran that I found this like small group of very gifted creative people? In some ways, yes, in some ways, no. But I think that's also finally, you know, the, the freedom of writing a novel and um, not having to answer to the statistical demographics of it and being able to concentrate on, you know, some of the outliers and some of the amazing people who are really doing things that are very different. And they should be given every, you know, bit of attention as anybody else who's amazing in our culture that we would write on just alone that wouldn't have to represent the, the whole. You know what I mean? I think this is a big problem with Iran is that there's always this like, well, is this representative? And it's like, well, it doesn't always have to be. Like, why, why, why can't I write about the like amazing, you know? I know that wasn't your point, but I'm just. No, the question is whether yeah. there is anything that could represent the quote unquote society. I don't think so, and I think it's unfair. You know, I have students who sit in on modern Iran, I think we were talking about this a little bit, and they'll be like, well, I'm Iranian. Mm. <laughs> so, so I have American students here. Do you think they know about jazz, the you know, constitutional law? <laughs> Just because, you know, I mean, come on, really? Is, is that, like, what does that mean? And it's so big. And I also tell them about how, you know, Spike Lee made Summer of Sam, and everyone was like, oh, well, that's not, that's not Spike Lee work. Well, yes, it is. You know, so he made a movie that centered on, on somebody who's white. It doesn't, you know, like, and, you know, we have, um, uh, his name is escaping me. Oh, this is terrible. This is old age. But, you know, the ghettoization, too, of, um, you know, what, um, God, what is his name? He calls it the savage slot. I teach this. I should remember. It'll come to me, like, in an hour. But, you know, this idea that we're only allowed to sort of, like, work within a certain particular kind of ethnic, racial, religious, whatever it is, and that's your savage slot, especially if you're doing third, third world studies or, you know, whatever, or you're working on an ethnic minority or a racial minority, that you, that's, that's it. And then you, you know, then that should, it's, you have to represent everyone. Well, you're not going to. You know, there, it's more nuanced than that. People are in different classes. There, you have different, edu you know, you can't, it's, yeah, it's an ongoing battle with Iranian studies. You know, I wanted to, um, as you were making cinematic references, I thought, have you, have you thought about the ways in which this book would be rendered as film? I imagine that working in that format, that, that yeah. might be something that's also come to you as you've been... I, I really, I really wanted to make it into a film, and it's very visual. And <coughs> I probably can't say anything for legal reasons, but it's already been plagiarized. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's all I'll say for now. But yeah, it's I, I thought about it as a play because I was so interested in kind of doing the play within the play. Um, when I when I realized how difficult it was going to be to publish a book that. Um, it does not sit in a particular genre, mm -hmm. where as, as agents told me, where would I put this in a bookshelf in the bookstore? And I'm thinking, well, you can just do it online and have a couple keywords, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I really thought, well, I'll just abandon it and turn it into a screenplay. And mm -hmm. I kind of played with that a little bit, which is why it might be a little dialogue heavy in places. Um, and I went back and forth, and then I went to Iran in 2012, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just get some of these theater folks and shoot a few scenes, and it would be fun, too, to have them kind of act, you know, something yeah. that I've rewritten that they may or may not recognize parts of themselves <coughs> in or not, you know. Um, but it was just such a huge project, yeah. and, yeah. In, in that vein, uh, would you like 
kid an Iranian director? Because there's some great Iranian directors uh, yeah. to, to do it rather than, well, me. You're probably not going <laughs> to. No. <laughs> no, I wasn't meaning that. It it's probably would not be a good fit with Hollywood. So an Iranian director. No. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, definitely. I work on film. Actually, yeah. a majority of my articles that aren't in books are on film. And definitely, I already, like in my head, you know, somebody that I would, would be really fun to work with who's like me on the outside but very connected would be someone like Matt John Satrapi, you know. I mean, somebody who really... Um, but there are directors who come from a strong theater background, and I think it would really have to be someone who appreciated and cared about theater. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of overacting as well, <laughs> a lot of. But you, you guys don't see the Iranian melodramas, so that's you get to see the more quality <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a lot of pretty. And you know, I have to say that Grotowski has shifted the way the acting. Um, the, acting in Iran as well. You see a lot more um, very intense body work and, and vocal vocal work too. You know, they're all very interested in people like Meredith Monk. And uh, again, this goes back to the idea of not using language but using sound. And Grotowski always says things like, you, you know, the actor's body is a cave that sound moves through. And they love that idea because if you're working in censorship, it's so much easier to work with sound than it is to work with language. So um, it would be fun to work with a director who understood, you know, those things and brought in those elements. But yeah, a, a friend who's a documentary, well, I, she's not a friend, I just met her, a documentary makers commented that it was very visual read. Mm -hmm. And she asked the same question, Did you, have you thought about making it into a film? Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And also, just uh, one point. Um, plastic flowers never die. Yes. Maybe we could have you in the future here to show <laughs> sure. it to us. I love okay. it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, there fun. are some books there, you know, for, for you to purchase. And I'm sure uh, Professor Bayazi will be happy to sign them. Oh, yeah, of course. Maybe I can take a picture with you next week. So <laughs> sure. I have a Facebook site, so I'm, I'm, I'm recording it. It doesn't everything. happen unless it, you know, <laughs> yeah, without, Facebook. Oh, without Facebook, reality doesn't happen. I'm sure of that. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank Thanks you. So much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for the right Thank you.